Hi, listeners. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Lori Gottlieb. She is a New York Times bestselling author and a therapist. Her most recent book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is a revealing behind-the-scenes peek at how revising our well-worn stories helps us move forward and heal. So glad she's joining us today. Enjoy our off-the-cuff conversation. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Lori, thank you so much for coming on Mental Health News Radio. It's my pleasure. Now, you've got a book that's coming out, so tell our listeners when and what the title of this one is, because I know you've written a few. This one is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, and it is coming out on April 2nd. Fantastic. Right around the corner. I love that concept, a therapist and her therapist, because I will tell you what, there are some therapists out there and I, and listen, my whole, my healthy parents were therapists, but there are some therapists out there that won't go to counseling for themselves. (laughs) And I always think, don't you need it probably more than anyone else? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, You know, I think that a lot of people who come to see us don't realize that most therapists do go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, partly it's because the work we do is very um, emotionally intense Mm -hmm. and we need a place to kind of talk about that. But I think another reason is just that we're just people going through the world. And it's really important that we do have our lives together if we're going to help other people with, uh, you know, what they're struggling with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you're, you know, a licensed therapist, you are supposed to be. Um, you know, going through that therapeutic process as part of uh, as part of you, like you said, continuing to do your own work. But there are a few people that find ways to hide, even in the counseling profession, that um, that are really good at giving advice, but it's a little hollow because they're not doing their own work, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have to have your own life experiences in order to understand other people's, even if your experiences look different. Yes, absolutely. So when uh, deciding to do this particular book, what, um, what made you want to do this and do this with 
your therapist, because that's taking, that's taking that other level, we call it, you know, breaking the fourth wall, I guess, and acting, but that's taking counseling to a whole other dimension in terms of talking about it. I really wanted to bring people into the therapy room with me because I felt like um, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of misconceptions about what therapy is mm-hmm. that I think if people could see what it is, it would feel less stigmatizing or less scary or mysterious. And they would see what a rich human experience it really is. And, um, and I think they'd see themselves in these patients, right? So I think that even though, um, you know, these patients are all very different from each other, I think that people will see aspects of themselves, you know, their blind spots and how they shoot themselves mm-hmm. in the foot and, and right. you know, keep repeating these patterns over and over that they aren't yet aware of. Um, so I think that was why I wanted to bring people back into the therapy room itself. And then I wanted to bring people into the therapy room where I'm the patient because I really feel like it's important for people to um, to see that we're all more the same than we are different. Right. And, um, you know, study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of someone's therapy isn't the therapist's training or how many years they've been doing it or their area of expertise or, um, you know, what modality they use, although all of those things are obviously important. Um, but they're not as important as the relationship you have with your therapist. And so I think it's important for people to see my humanity um, in this book. And that was why I brought myself in as both therapist and patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it is reaching a whole other level of of being revealing. And I know just from being in the mental health industry myself for a long time, I'm not a counselor. I always come at everything from a patient perspective. But, you know, back in the day, it was you do not reveal personal things about yourself. That's becoming more and more, um, you know, especially with addiction treatment where you do definitely reveal, yes, I was an addict as well for the people that are. That's lessened quite a bit, the whole clipboard and you're on a sofa and I'm not looking at you and I don't share anything about myself personally. So how do you feel about that shift and then also um, still maintain a boundary. Right. I don't think that most therapists talk about their personal lives in the Mm -hmm. room. I think what they do differently is that they bring their personalities into the room, their reactions into the room. Um, You know, if someone mentions something from The Bachelor, I'm not going to pretend that I don't watch it because that would be revealing too much, right? Right. Um, So, you know, I think that, um, you know, we bring our ourselves into the room, um, you know, we'll laugh at things um, with the patient um, instead of like, if they do say something funny, we won't just sit there like a brick wall. Um, you know, we have like normal reactions. If something is sad in the book, there's a woman that I'm treating who's dying, you know, she's a good 30 something year old and newly married and, and she's diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, when she gets bad news, we, you know, I tear up and that's my reaction. So I think we bring that into the room, but we don't say, you know, here's what's going on in my personal life. I, I, I don't, I don't know therapists who do that. Yeah, exactly. And I meant more in terms of you writing this book and, um, you know, sharing, I know that some of it probably, you know, it gets changed around, but you know, the blind spots, even that you have had that you've had to work through in your own therapy, um, and then being revealing about them in a book. Right, right. That's very different. You're right. Um, then, you know, what would happen in the therapy room. 
And, you know, I think I talk about in the book how one of my colleagues, when she was um, struggling to get pregnant and she and her husband really wanted a baby and she had suffered miscarriage after miscarriage and she was standing in a Starbucks pregnant when she got a call from her doctor saying that the, the baby wasn't viable. And she started sobbing, you know, she just sort of broke down. And then her patient walked in and saw this and kind of made eye contact with her and left and never came back. Mm. And I think that, I think that that's where that line gets a little bit, um, where I wanted to kind of break down that wall because I think her reaction was so human and so normal. And I think if your therapist is a robot, they're not going to understand you. They're not right. going to they're not going to be able to help you very well. And so if that were my therapist, would I want her to take that call in the therapy room? Of course not. But if I had seen her in a Starbucks in a completely different context, um you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't get into a conversation with her about why she was crying, but I would think, oh, you know, she will understand me and my struggles more because she's having a reaction to something difficult because she's in human. the way that people do. She's human. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, good for you because that, that piece um, where we, you know, I, my therapist would never reveal if she is going to reveal something, it's very, uh, it's a little thing and it's, and she asks permission. Are you okay if I share this? Because what you're talking about seems to, and she knows that I'm very visual and I want to hear a, a little bit of a story. And she asks my permission and I have the mm-hmm. choice to say no or yes, I want to hear it. But every time she does, you know, six months later, I, I said, well, remember when you told me blah, blah, blah. And she had to sit back and she said, oh, right. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, remember I those things. Yeah, because they it, it was powerful. It was something about um tripping over yourself to uh, answer the phone for someone that constantly is rushing, 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 rushing. And she was like, well, I tripped over myself for this person, literally almost broke my foot to answer the, their phone call and thought, what am I doing? And she was and the way that she put it, it you know, at the time I was like, huh. That's an interesting story. And then six months later, I did the same thing where I almost nailed myself on a um, elliptical machine over someone that was pushy, pushy, pushy. And that's when I said, <laughs> remember that time? Now I get what you're talking, what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I think story is so important yes. in terms of, you know, helping us to see things that might be hard to see if you just describe the behavior. But if you tell it in a story like that or use metaphor, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a really good use of self-disclosure. Absolutely. So how about this? Um, I mean, I, I always remember too, I'm in the bubble of mental health. And when I go outside of it, not everybody is as okay and comfortable talking about things like, um, you know, sexual abuse or whatever um, outside of that bubble. And sometimes I'm a little shocked at that and go, that's right. I'm not at a mental health conference. Got it. But how do you, how have you handled people that, really believe that therapy is a crutch? Well, I think maybe they don't know what therapy is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of like, I think we we feel a lot of um, shame and there's a lot of secrecy around what people experience. So I think if you are experiencing chest pain, for example, right, and, you know, mm-hmm. like not crushing chest pain, just like, you know, you notice something feels a little weird and it kept happening over the course of weeks or months, you would probably get that checked out before you had a massive heart attack. But if someone's feeling, they're struggling emotionally, they're feeling sad for a prolonged period of time or anxious or, 
you know, whatever they're going through, oftentimes we minimize it. And we say, oh, you know, I shouldn't, you know, I have nothing to feel sad about. I can't really pinpoint why I'm sad. Nothing is happening in my life that is making me sad. And so they don't get help for it. And they try to tamp down the feeling. And what happens is um, if you try to suppress a feeling, it just gets bigger because it needs air. And so eventually they will have probably some kind of emotional heart attack and that will bring them into therapy or they'll just, you know, not come to therapy, but they're going to kind of um, deal with the consequences of, of, you know, not paying attention to what their feelings are telling them. Our feelings are like a compass. Um, and if your compass is off, you're going to make lots of choices that yes. lead you in directions you don't want to go in. And that you don't even realize it. I, I think about it too, in terms of, uh, really learning what forgiveness means, uh, not the forgiveness word that people throw around, you know, like it's bubblegum, but really what it means and how much it really is about letting yourself be free. And boy, the room that opens up in your life to do all the things that really inspire and, you know, drive your, ignite your passion when you really start forgiving things. That's been a big eye opener for me in the last few years of, wow, I've been carrying this stuff around for a long, 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 long time. And look at what I've been able to do with all that room I created by going through these acts of forgiveness, which are, like I said, very different from what the popular usage of the word is. Well, I think too, we have to learn to make peace with ourselves and forgive Mm -hmm. ourselves. Um, you know, I, I, there's a term, you know, forced forgiveness. And I think that you don't, not everybody, some people forgive people and in a, in a way that feels extremely, um, liberating and like Mm -hmm. you were just describing, and that can be a really important experience. And other people, you know, they don't, they don't want to be forced to forgive something and they find a different way to move on. They might have more compassion for that person. They might have more of an understanding of, that other person's experience, but they might not necessarily forgive them. But I think what's really important is that we are kinder to ourselves. That doesn't mean not taking responsibility for our actions, but it means forgiving ourselves and learning from the experience. And if you if you are trapped in this self-flagellating cycle, you're not going to learn from the experience because you're so busy beating yourself up. Right. But if you can step back and say, this is what I want to do differently. I regret that I did this. Um, then you can really benefit from reflecting on the experience and making different choices. Mm, absolutely. So tell our listeners why this field, um, why, why was, you know, getting into this field, there's always a, well, not always, but usually a story behind that. What, what was the attraction and the drive for you? Well, I came to therapy later in life, and um, I had had other careers, so I took this very circuitous route. I worked in the entertainment business, and I was um, I worked in film development, and then later I was doing um, television development. And there was this show called ER on at the time, <laughs> and um, it took place in an emergency room. And uh, there was a consultant on the show who worked at an ER, and I hung out with him in the ER and I really liked the, the interactions with people, the real life sort of human drama that was going on in the ER. And, um, 
And he said to me at some point, you know, it's not too late to go to medical school. And I was 27 at the time. And I, you know, didn't have any intention of, of doing that. But I, but I ended up doing it. I ended up really feeling the pull. And I went to medical school. I started medical school. I did not finish. Um, because when I was at medical school, I was also writing. And I published my first book. And I ended up deciding that I wanted to do journalism and, and really get into people's stories by telling their stories as a journalist. Um, and then later, after having a baby, when I realized that I wanted to have colleagues, <laughs> you know, as opposed to sort of the solitary life of a journalist, um, I wanted, a, you know, adult humans to talk to during the day who were verbal and could, um, you right, know, that didn't just say different ways. Yes, exactly. Um, loved my child dearly. But, yes. um, but I, um, you know, and so I called up the dean at the medical school and I said, you know, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, the thing that you really liked when you were here was you really liked the relationships. And if you want to do more, then you can do talk therapy as a psychiatrist. But if you want to, you know, I think you're going to end up being pigeonholed into, um, you know, going through a lot, going through residency, finishing medical school, going through residency with a baby and a toddler. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, and then, you know, perhaps ending up prescribing Celexa for a lot of your day. And <laughs> right. that doesn't seem like what you want. Why don't you go to graduate school and um, and become a psychotherapist? And that's was the best advice. And it, it really allowed me to work with story in the way that I always enjoyed, which was story in the human condition. But this time, instead of telling people stories as a journalist, I wanted to help people change their stories. Mm. Mm, that's phenomenal. So how about, um, you know, family and friends finding out you're making yet another career? That's a very different career. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I either came across as very versatile or very confused and, and probably more of the latter. That Those two um, things make for great therapists. <laughs> right. Versatile um, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. But I think I think that in hindsight, you know, all of the, all of the reasons that I chose the path that I did were connected. And sometimes we don't see the connections at the time where we're following some internal barometer of, you know, what our passions are. And I think at a certain point, you know, they do, you do understand the rhyme and the reason of, of how you ended up where you did. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But boy, does it take age and wisdom to really connect those dots, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it can. <laughs> right. Not, not for everybody. For me, I, uh, it took me, for me, it took a long time. It took a very long time. <laughs> me too. Now I'm, I'm 49 and I'm like, Oh, that's why I did that job in my twenties. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was a frivolous waste of my time, but now it's coming in really handy. <laughs> well, I think people too think that, you know, that things need to be more linear than they are. And that's great if it is, if you, if you always knew you wanted to do X, you know, profession right. and, and you do that and you're really happy with that. That's great. But sometimes it takes a little exploration and sometimes you have to know more about yourself before you find the right fit. And it seems like, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe just in this bubble that I talked about already, but it seems like that's becoming so much more accepted now um, than had the same job for 30 or 40 years. Not that that it was a bad road at all. That's the way it was. But it seems like it's more attractive now to be more versatile, versatile in terms of your, you know, your career paths um, and your, your 
hobbies as well um, and your social activities, it seems like versatility uh, instead of it, you know, oh, you're this horrible job hopper or, oh, look at all these whack things that you do. It's, oh, you're much more interesting and and have more to offer because you do all these things. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's very true nowadays. Um, you know, but I think there's more freedom to do that nowadays, which is why more people yeah. are taking advantage of that. Let's talk about your article in the New York Times. What brand is your therapist? Sure. So <laughs> one of the things that I find fascinating being on the consulting side of the mental health industry is how um, learning how to market yourself or, and I know that's not just what this article is about, but learning how to put yourself out there as a therapist is not necessarily something that you're taught when you're going to, I'm going to become a therapist school. So what made you, you know, what was the impetus for you writing an article like this? And I mean, I know it was popular because I, I looked at the stats behind it, but I, how many people actually paid attention and did what you, the great things that you were telling them to do? <laughs> Well, I, I wanted to write that piece because when I was starting out as a therapist, I was really surprised by how hard the business side of it was. Mm -hmm. And I think that in graduate school, you know, we're taught so much about the craft of therapy and we're not taught a lot about the logistics of starting a practice. You know, right. we get we get a, we get some information about it. But, it, you know, I think we're we're reluctant as therapists to think of what we do as a business because we're helping people, right. and yet we're also taking money to do that. And I think that some people are uncomfortable with the juxtaposition of those two things. And in any other profession, you know, a doctor isn't like, oh, you know, it's bad that I'm taking money to do your right. surgery. Um, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, but, but with what we do, because it's so, the relationships are so personal yeah. that sometimes it feels like what we're doing isn't a business, even though it is. And so I, I no, go ahead. No, no, no. You keep going. Um, and so I felt like, I felt like I was really surprised by the fact that I had come from a career as a journalist where even then, you know, writers are very, tend to be very introverted like I am and <laughs> therapists also, we, you know, we like our, the quiet space. We're not, we're not people who want to be sort of like front and center and out in the media. And I think that when I first started writing, I was really surprised by how much, you know, because writing is so much about you and the material, how much I had to be out there promoting my work. But I thought that when I switched over to therapy that I wouldn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, that that, that that certainly didn't go with being a therapist. You, you have people, they come see you. It's a very private kind of thing. Um, and yet, in order to get people to come see you, they have to know that your practice exists. And so there are actually marketing people out there, branding people for therapists. And that made me profoundly uncomfortable mm. um, in a way that I think it makes many therapists uncomfortable. And I, I had to, in that piece, I talk about how I sort of came to a place of peace with what I would and would not do to promote my practice. I wasn't going to, you know, do this um, marketing where I guarantee some kind of, uh, you know, quick fix or I give advice or instant gratification. I was still going to do the work that I do as a therapist. And for those people who wanted to experience that, I was the right therapist for them. But for people who wanted something different, maybe a life coach or something else, um, you know, I would not be the right therapist for. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, yeah. And that's, I, I 
going to be talking about podcasts um, at a NAMI conference, and I'm shocked that they're, you know, I mean, they asked me to do it, but it's going to be about, you know, how important podcasting can be in terms of your business. And um, I have some former therapists, a couple former therapists of mine uh, that want me to produce podcasts for them. And I'm like, boy, it is a whole new world out there in mental health. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I'm like, well, if it's a good message, um, I want more people talking about, you know, about mental health. But um, it, it's it's a definitely a can be a sticky and uncomfortable um, road on the, uh, on doing that. Just like when you see in, you know, the spiritual world, why well, shouldn't I have to pay you healer for uh, working with me because you're doing, we're working on spiritual things as if money is not connected in any way to spirituality. <laughs> right. Right. And also, you know, I think that, um, partly there's this worry that people are going to think that because we get paid for what we do and because, therapy can look different in terms of time frame for everybody. Mm -hmm. So some people might come for a few sessions, some people might come for six months, and some people might come for years. Um, it just depends on why they're there and what they're wanting. But I think that just because you take money for your service doesn't mean that you aren't also going to be ethical and yes. talk to people about terminating and, you know, when it seems like the work is done or at least done for now. Um, you know, we have the worst business model ever, which is from day one, our goal is to help you not to see us anymore. Exactly. Exactly. That's very true. Very true. And I, I don't know, you have to be someone that really uh, is not a lack thinking person to know that it's, it's like saying on a, a podcast, I was speaking to someone about this, you know, uh, a podcaster lamenting over, I just, I don't know how you get so many guests, Kristen, like, how do you get so many guests? And I said, because I don't think in terms of lack, there are how many billions of people on this planet? Yeah, there's never I am never going to run out of people to have as guests. I mean, I'll inter I'll interview my neighbor that has bipolar and I'll interview Dr. Gabor Mate. Like I don't it does. I there people are there. <laughs> yeah, there's no lack for of interesting stories and interesting, um, you know, people to talk to. I think in the therapy business, it's it's hard because therapy is so prohibitive for so many people. Yes. And um you know, so that's another issue that I think we deal with on the on the side of wanting to help people and also knowing that, um, you know, the the healthcare system is is very yeah. difficult for most people to access the kind of mental health care that they want. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's many a friend of mine that's in the mental health field that when a family member was going through, um, you know, a, a psychotic episode or, you know, something was going on and they needed emergency mental help and they couldn't get it and they work in the mental health field. So it's it's really, really challenging out there. Um, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and where you're taking, you know, once the book comes out, I know there's speaking tours and so on. Where can they not only find you, but also see where it is they can hear you do one of your talks? Sure. Um, so they can find me online at lauriegottlieb.com. It's L-O-R-I. G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B.com. Or they can also find me on Twitter at, at Lori Gottlieb1, the number one. Um, 
and uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be in Portland uh, this Thursday, and next week I will be in um, New York, uh, D.C., Boston, Chicago, New Jersey, um, uh, Seattle. And later <laughs> I'll be in San Francisco, Minneapolis, um, the Denver area. So a bunch of places, and it's all on my website under events if they wanted to come see me in person. So last question for you. How does an introvert handle all that travel and that blast of, of people <laughs> that comes? <laughs> that's, that's such a fantastic question. Um, there's a great book called Quiet by Susan Cain, mm. and um, it's, about, it's about, you know, how introverts, um, what our strengths are, and also how we handle... Um, you know, some of the realities of, of, you know, just needing to be out in the world. And I don't mean just in terms of a, a book launch, but I mean, just people who in go to general. parties or people who, yeah, mm -hmm. how to deal if you have to give a talk at work, those kinds of things. Um, and I think this is something that I'm really passionate about. And so even though, um, you know, my, my preference is to kind of be in my, in my sweatpants in front of a laptop or be, yes, you know, in my work clothes in a therapy room um, with just, you know, one or two other people. I think it's exciting when you can bring the therapy experience to so many people, because when you're working in the therapy room, everything is one-on-one -on -one and, um, or one-on-two or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, I think it's great to be able to say to people, hey, you might not be interested in going to therapy or, um, you know, uh, be able to go to therapy. But if you read this book, you might get that experience anyway. So I'm happy to spread mm. that message. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's perfect. Love it. We're going to meme that. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for coming on my show. We absolutely appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been such a great conversation. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio on Mental Health News Radio Network. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. 
Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.